Welcome back to Nothing Never Happens. I'm here with Chris Crass, an activist, scholar, educator. He's going to be talking with us in this second part about higher education, curricular choices, the use of privilege, and intersectional pedagogies. Well, I want to shift a little bit. There's so much to talk about here. Um, I want to talk uh, about what all this means for higher education and our classes and curriculum in higher education, regardless of the discipline. Um, and uh, one of the resources, and uh, there's a PDF on your website, uh, we are the 99%, we are unstoppable, another world is possible, which was the motto of the U.S. Social Forum several years ago. Catalyzing Liberation Toolkit, Anti-Racist Organizing to Build the 99% Movement, a resource compiled by the Catalyst Project and Chris Crass, and I, I want you to maybe talk a little bit about the founding of the Catalyst Project, but the, this is a very good, uh, has a very good set of resources for teaching from Paul Kibble's material um, uh, on anti-racism to, to other things. So. How does all this translate into um, college and university graduate school classrooms when, um, you know, even in this time of, you know, political upheaval, we're, and we're probably always in that, in that period of not really being the democracy uh, that we envision ourselves being, um, how do we begin to address that in the, in the choices we make in our curriculum. Um, and I'm speaking as an activist educator, but what can um, uh, movement building and anti-racist organizers such as yourself and, and others in Black Lives Matter, you know, from the WTO, from Occupy, from the world and, and U.S. social forums, and groups like the Highlander Center, Project South, um, and many, many others, what do you have to tell us in, in higher education? Yeah, so I mean, the, the, with, with, with Catalyst Project, um, it was formed um, at a time when myself and others were, were we had two kind of uh, objectives here. One was how can we take a lot of this incredible learning that we're getting in college around women of color feminism, around intersectional uh, uh, activism, um, which, you know, at the time in the you know, late 90s, I mean, there was very few people talking about, you know, intersectional activism in the way it is today. I mean, now yeah. it is something that people talk about um, widely, which is incredible, mm -hmm. um, and particularly in mostly white um, social justice circles that I was in in the, in the late 90s, you know. Women of color feminism wasn't wasn't talked about very much. Intersectional femi uh, intersectional activism wasn't talked about very much, and so Catalyst Project. One of the goals was to, how can we create participatory, you know, out of the Highlander Center model of popular education, of really being able to go and work with communities, with faith groups, um, work with a wide range of people, um, and use ideas and concepts and, and history and theory that we had been learning in higher education, mm -hmm. how to create a democratic education that invited people into those ideas that was also connected yeah. to what do these ideas mean for activism and organizing right mm -hmm. now. Um, because one of the things that, um, you know, and the other, the other thing with Catalyst Project was really being able to try to figure out how to 
uh, not just have anti-racism be something that's a laundry list of what mm-hmm. white people should not do, yeah. but <laughs> to actually generate a vibrant uh, understanding, commitment, and set of values of mm-hmm. anti-race, anti-racism as a liberatory force for white people to yeah. join multiracial movements for structural change, for uh, uh, an understanding of how, how we can all get free from the nightmare of racism. And so Catalyst Project has really started to help build up that kind of leadership and commitment and culture of anti-racism in white communities. And specifically to your question, how to, how to kind of bridge the gap between higher education yeah. and grassroots activism. Yeah. And, so, um, and, and so in thinking about higher education today, um, you know, how h- higher education has played an incredible role in uh, social justice ideas and theory and understanding, and that's come from people's movements. I mean, people's movements have forced higher education to be much more democratic than it, than, than it was ever intended to be. It wasn't like ruling class people said, oh, let us give education to the workers. Let us give education to people of color that's actually teaching them about their own history. Um, it was people's movements fighting for greater access to higher education, fighting for an expansion of, you know, free or public education of, of, of higher, you know, free college, free college for working class kids. Yeah. Um, and then also in the night, you know, I went to San Francisco state and the reason I went to San Francisco state, one of the main reasons was because I wanted to go to the school uh, that was on the front lines of winning ethnic studies and women's studies mm-hmm. and, the, and, and, and the departments that I wanted to study. And the student strike in, at San Francisco State in the late 60s was an incredible example of a multiracial, uh, people of color-led movement that fought not just for a more democratic and affordable and accessible education, but an education in which working-class people, people of color, women, and then ultimately for all for for LGBTQ people, uh, for for people who have been on the margins, for people who um, have been who have disabilities, who are then uh, forced to the margins of a society that only values bodies that can produce profit for a capitalist system, and so sees people with disabilities um, as as people who aren't deserving of resources, aren't deserving of of, of respect, um, and so the the student strike expanded education and won. I mean, so every time you sit in a women's studies class, every time you sit in a labor studies class, an ethnic studies class. Those are classes that were won by students who fought back, mm-hmm. by students who yeah. said, we will not accept the institution as it is. We demand the institutions of higher education serve our people, serve our communities, serve our liberation, and we are not coming to school to become soldiers of capitalism, to become a machine, to be able to create profit for the rich, and we yeah. want education, we want higher education to serve our people's freedom, our people's uh, uh, being able to have living wages for our people, being able to have healthy uh, communities and, and housing and, and, and quality schools and parks for our kids. We want higher education to help us have a democratic, uh, just society. Um, and so 
higher education is under attack by the right wing. I mean, the right wing is constantly trying to undermine the gains of people's movements. So when the alt-right today talks about how multiculturalism and uh, diversity and all of these things are an attack on the on, on white people, what's I mean, that's, it's an attack on white supremacy and it's an attack on uh, a, a white supremacist worldview. But the alt-right, the right wing, all of these forces understand that higher education is a contested area. The left has contested for being able to influence higher education to expand opportunity for people to be able to go to go to college and the left has fought to expand the ideas, the history, the worldviews that are taught in colleges and the right wing hates that. The right wing is this, this whole fake idea of uh, uh, the war on free speech that the right wing speaks of. So women of color, you know, Linda Sarsour and, uh, 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 you know, uh, Patrice Cullors from Black Lives Matter, they get death threats when they are on their way to speak at a college campus. The right wing is silent. The right wing is the one sending those death threats. Yeah. But then, you know, these, these right wing folks who are, you know, uh, trying to incite uh, violence with with their rhetoric, with with their attack on transgender students, their attack on on students of color. They talk about this war on free speech when they are protested at college campuses. It's a fake fight. It's a fight to try to. Mm-hmm. It's a fight to try to make higher education serve the needs of the right wing to serve the needs of ruling class agendas. And so, for higher education, for people who are in higher education to know that this is contested ground, who they choose to teach, what books they teach, which authors they lift up, whose leadership they highlight in their classes, whose histories they talk about. And I'm not saying that if you t- if you're teaching European history, that's automatically uh, a, a white supremacist. There's a lot of European history that is about a working class socialist commitment to equality for all people. There are anti-fascist histories in for white people in the U.S., you know, history of European Americans. There is a history of European Americans, of white people in this country who have fought back against racism that needs to be brought into the history alongside the history of, you know, uh, of the civil rights movement, of black abolitionists, of the brown power uh, movement, of, of, of organizing in communities of color and the histories of communities of color. And so there is a multiracial history that includes white people that needs to be taught, that needs to be fought for. And so for everyone in higher education to understand that the right wing is constantly, constantly trying to narrow the terrain of debate, trying to narrow what higher education can do in society because they know that, the, that higher education has historically played a role of expanding democratic values, democratic commitments, and democratic movements for change. And so that's what we need to fight for. Higher education that serves the needs of our people, that serves our communities, that serves building up justice movements, as opposed to just creating more and more professionals to serve the interests of the rich. Well, then on the other side of that, if we're not doing that in our classes, if we're not including all these other rich voices in this rich tradition um, and you know Howard Zinn comes to mind with the people's history of the US um, then are we serving the other master you know the neoliberal capitalist corporation of the university with the big U 
Yeah, I think absolutely. And I'm not saying that if you're, you know, if the focus of your class is on, you know, isn't on, you know, a, a, a fo- you know, people of color or, you know, LGBTQ people. There are ways of teaching all of our classes that, I mean, you could, t- you could be teaching a science class um, and b- being able to bring in the ways that science has been used to further movements like the eugenics movement in this country where science, where racist scientists mm-hmm. abandoned their commitment to science and committed themselves to a racist worldview and then bent science to try to say that people of color are inherently uh, inferior, using mm-hmm. science to try to justify a white supremacy, which was completely, uh, uh, you know, not actually, was all debunked science. Mm-hmm. But so being able to, in whatever way, being able to say all of our different disip- uh, uh, disciplines, all of our different studies mm-hmm. can serve different purposes. They can be served to further inequality they can be used to further divisions they can be used to further uh, structural oppression or they can be served to expand democracy expand equality expand uh, health and human rights for all people and so all of and so again it's, it's not just like what you're teaching but what are the values that you're also teaching in the curriculum uh, in how you're going about it and trying to help prepare people um, you know, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't be prepared to um, try to be able to get jobs and be able to support their families, um, but also people being prepared to be uh, a democratic, social justice committed uh, participants in our society um, so that we aren't on the course um, uh, of, of the, the worldview of the White House right now with Donald Trump, which is a, mm-hmm. a minority white uh, racist worldview of the whole world is out to get you, that people of color are out to destroy white people's lives, that women should know their place, that LGBTQ mm-hmm. people should go back in the closet. This whole worldview that's being pushed from the White House to neo-Nazis and Klan on the streets, um, as well as to well-meaning um, you know, uh, uh, white progressive people mm-hmm. who say, no, it's all lives matter, not black lives matter. Yeah. Um, you know, so again, we need to be able to uh, use, you know, higher education as a way of expanding democratic, mm-hmm. uh, multiracial feminist uh, values and commitment in a way that brings a lot of people into that work. Well, are you also saying that uh, academics uh, and, you know, college teachers, for example, need to uh, step up and step out and build coalitions with activist educators and organizers in order to learn about these things. Because it's pretty complicated to teach what you're not, you know. And, uh, for example, if I teach about womanist thought or if a white cisgender male teaches you know, a European American <laughs> teaches about post-colonial uh, or feminist stuff. Um, you know, how do how do we uh, approach and balance that power imbalance in the classroom, um, and uh, you know, bring and reach uh, students who are um, from a variety and multiplicity of positions because of their own social location and background. Yeah. You know, so what are the lessons from popular education and movement building, organizing um, that can help us in the in the uh, higher education classroom, 
and also K through 12, um, to be better educators, to be, you know, uh, to allow spaces of transformation um, from, by, and with our students. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot around um, trying to break out of this idea, this, this individualism of, like, you know, that you alone need to be able to teach it all or you alone. I mean, there's certain things that I yeah. feel like, you know, um, I'm in a I'm in a position, and, and based on you know the the work that I've done and the experience mm-hmm. that I've had, the, there are some things that feel like it's important um, to be able to speak on and be able to try to do education on. And there's a wide range of things where you know I look to the leadership, the educate the, the educational expertise and experience um, uh, uh, of other people mm-hmm. to be able to both learn from personally, um, but to be able to then also help create opportunities for more and more people to get exposed to their leadership, to their education uh, work that they're doing. And so I'd say for, you know, for academics to not feel like you alone have to be yeah. the only one who is teaching. You are, sometimes there will be time, you know, where you are the one who's really bringing in your expertise, your area of knowledge, mm-hmm. um, but you're also at times helping to hold an educational space where your students can in- hear from other voices, whether that's you know, uh, people who are being brought into the classroom from the community, whether that's documentaries, whether that's in what it is you're, again, you're choosing for, uh, for people to read and for people to study, um, but also mm-hmm. to really create opportunities for students to feel a sense of power over their own education, to invite students mm-hmm. into an active role in shaping their education, yeah. um, asking questions, not just, not just, you know, here's a bunch of information, here's a bunch of whatever, and now you, you know, uh, regurgitate it, but asking questions that encourage critical thinking, that encourage reflection, that encourage um, that encourage students from multiple different positions in the classroom to mm-hmm. begin to see themselves as part of history, to see yeah. themselves as part of an interconnected world, and the way then that for students in a classroom to be able to start to see the different ways that they're connected to each other, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of uh, over time with history in terms of you know who we are in society to be learning from each other so creating opportunities for students to learn about themselves creating opportunities for students to learn about each other mm-hmm. um, and but but as an academic holding space that supports that learning so for example yeah. you know not having a situation where if you're a white academic you kind of look to students of color to be the ones that talk about race in the classroom you as a white ac- academic need to be able to develop a sense of your own um, anti-racist commitment, mm-hmm. your own anti-racist position, and to be able to help hold this anti-racist space in the classroom and not uh, a kind of nervously look to students of color to address a question mm-hmm. that a white student might ask about like, you know, so like, what, what, what is all this stuff about Black Lives Matter? Or what is all this stuff about, you know, DACA students? What is all this stuff, you know, and, for, you know, the white academic to kind of sheepishly, you know, look at, you know, yeah. well, just the, the race question's been brought up hopefully a student of color will like speak to this as opposed to being like, you know, yeah, there might be students of color that would like to speak on this issue, but students of color shouldn't be expected to speak on this issue. And as the, as the teacher, I have a responsibility to help hold a democratic space for learning and engagement and to be able to hold a commitment to whether your campus is the commitments to diversity, tolerance, equity, racial justice, whatever it is, mm-hmm. but to be able to have your own anti-racist uh, um, convictions help hold that space. Um, so 
I know it's complicated. I know it's challenging and we make mistakes and sometimes we're on our game and sometimes we're really not. Um, but having a commitment to, you know, we've talked about, you know, uh, the Highlander Center, you know, Paulo Freire and Miles Horton, you know, their book, you know, We Make the Road by Walking, which, you know, I know is a book that has been important to you and to, you know, your department here um, in religious studies. Um, You know, We Make the Road by Walking is that, you know, we don't have it all figured out, but we're on the journey to doing this work for liberation, and we're going to learn and grow as we step into the work, as we live and breathe these values and try to bring them into the world. Yeah, so the commitment is not just in the classroom and it's not just from the neck up. It's a whole embodied, lifelong journey. Absolutely. Inside and outside the classroom. I'd like you to very briefly, I've got two more things here. One is I would like you to to say a bit about anarchist education and and the anarchist tradition that informs, uh, it informed Gandhi and it informed the Highlander Center. And it's a scary term, and I, I'm hoping in the future to do a, to do a, a podcast on anarchist pedagogies. Um, so if you could just briefly talk about uh, that anarchist tradition that sort of fuels this underneath, it seems. Yeah, so anarchism, uh, you know, really kind of uh, develops as um, a, a resistance to hierarchical, um, government um, to um, you know a capitalist uh, economic system where you know a very few uh, a minority is privileged at the expense of the vast majority in terms of wealth and resources and land and, and culture being at the service of uh, of the rich and at the expense of the vast majority and so anarchism uh, develops as a as a commitment to um, a, a a democratic society that is also has economic justice at the center, mm-hmm. um, a democracy and socialism, um, not a democracy or socialism, but a democracy and socialism. And so, mm-hmm. f- uh, for myself, um, you know, as a young person, anarchism really spoke to me as I uh, particularly learned about the labor movement um, and the Haymarket Martyrs in the late 1800s, who were mm-hmm. uh, mostly European immigrants. Um, as well as some um, uh, U.S.-born European Americans, as well as you know Lucy Parsons, um, yeah. who was um, you know a, a black uh, and Native American uh, um, anarchist who were part of the labor movement in Chicago. Um, and one of the things that really spoke to me was the ways that they were organizing thousands and thousands of workers. Um, with a, an emancipata- a vision of emancipation, a vision of emancipation from capitalism, um, emancipation from uh, a political elite that, 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 mm-hmm. um, that denies the power for working class communities but accumulates the power at the top, taking power away from people. Yeah. Um, and they had a vision um, of, a, of a different society, of a commonwealth um, kind of mm-hmm. uh, idea of society where we're in this together, where we have a democratic and socialist society. Um, but they were also fighting for very concrete reforms like the eight-hour workday, like workers being able to form yeah. unions, um, workers being mm-hmm. able to have protection uh, from, um, you know, if they were hurt on the job, to being able to have protections uh, for workers um, to have dignity. Um, and so this combination of fighting for concrete changes in the here and now while also working for a larger vision of change 
um, really resonated for me. And, and some of the long-term lessons that I take from the anarchist tradition is a, this, this belief that change comes from the bottom up, that, yeah. that communities coming together and organizing, mm-hmm. creating culture, creating values um, of social justice, that this kind of uh, change at the grassroots level yeah. is key to the long haul transformation of our society. That yes, we need to fight for uh, Brown versus Board of Education. Yes, we need to fight for um, legislative and legal victories. Um, but just as Ella Baker and Miles Horton and Zelfia Horton and the folks at the Highlander Center understood, if Brown versus Board of Education does not have a mass grassroots movement working to desegregate society, it's yeah. going to be a law that no state government, that no racist white supremacist local government is going to respect, um, that the yeah. law might pass, but nothing will change. Mm-hmm. And so they knew, and this is a, this for me is, is, is key to having a really dynamic understanding of social change, is that we need to have people who are fighting in the courtroom uh, to change unjust laws, and we need people who are organizing in our communities, who have who are doing radical education work in our communities to expand what the idea of citizenship even is, what democracy is, um, and that building mass movements of everyday people in classes and classrooms and and, and communities um, is how long-term change happens. And so that, to me, is the the, the key uh, insight from the anarchist tradition. Well, thank you. Last question, which is kind of broad, but some uh, conversation earlier, you mentioned the beloved community. Um, So to talk about um, the sort of uh, emancipatory alternative future futures, and there there are three terms that that came out uh, as you were talking. One is outrage. You know, if you're not outraged, you're not... um, you know, thinking about anything. And then love, the concept of love you mentioned, which it comes from King and the Highlander Center and Paula Freire and, and, and Bell Hooks and others. Uh, and then hope. Um, so, you know, those three together seem to form, you know, some, uh, some grounding of your thoughts. So um, where do you see hope? And uh, what, is, what is hopeful in, in these times? I mean, these are brutal times. I mean, there is no glossing over that. There is no um, way to just, like, talk about hope without also uh, speaking into and being able to really feel the profound spiritual, political, and economic grief of these times in this country and in this world of the climate change deniers creating uh, uh, an apocalyptic future um, by withdrawing from the Paris Agreement, by denying the reality of climate change while hurricane after hurricane decimates our people and our communities um, from Puerto Rico uh, to Florida um, to, you know, all, all, all over. Um, and so the grief is at times unbearable. Um, and, you know, Adrienne Marie Brown, she says that it's not, uh, it's, it's not that things... Um, are worse necessarily than what they were before, but it's that the veils continue mm-hmm. to be pulled down, and the 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 the, the naked, uh, brutal truth of, of white supremacy of capitalism um, is yeah. ju- are just exposed, and they are mm-hmm. um, 
the 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 horrific and violent uh, um, dynamics of oppression are um, are unveiling themselves as they become mm-hmm. more and more uh, um, just forthright. Um, and so, I think for me, being able to be in that grief is actually um, a place of expanding my heart through heartbreak. Uh, to be able to then feel and connect to the deep hope that I feel when I hear DACA students who are defiant, who mm-hmm. come forward and say, I am undocumented, I am unafraid, and you might be trying to um, dismantle uh, DACA, um, but you're not going to dismantle me, you're not going to dismantle my family, you're not going to dismantle my community, you're not going to d- dismantle the uh, democratic values that so many of us in this country believe in. Um, and so that kind yeah. of defiance, the defiance of the uh, Black, Liber- of, of Black Lives Matter and the Black Liberation Movement um, in this, uh, uh, this, this time of outright um, self-proclaimed white supremacists on the march in this country mm-hmm. of white supremacists in the Justice Department um, saying that the number one issue right now is discrimination against white people. Um, all of these uh, uh, attacks on um, equity, on racial mm-hmm. justice, and the Black Lives Matter movement is uh, defiant and uh, maintains their commitment to a vision of transformation. So for me, mm-hmm. being able to uh, find hope um, in the resistance, in the resilience uh, of people who are on the front line um, of the attacks that are coming down, um, people who are not only fighting back but are maintaining a commitment, um, just like the labor movement of fighting for eight-hour workday, fighting for rights for workers who are injured on the job, who are being treated um, as machines, but continuing to also have this larger vision of, of a just society. And so my outrage comes from seeing the ways that oppression impacts our people. And by our people, I mean being able to see the ways that patriarchy is a nightmare in the lives of, of, of women and genderqueer and trans people with thousands, tens of thousands of people posting Me Too about sexual harassment, about sexual violence, but then also being able to see the hope of that resistance, of that declaration, of that, mm-hmm. that Me Too and I will not be silenced. I will not. I refuse um, to 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 be silent against this injustice. And then also seeing thousands of men coming forward and saying, um, you know, these are the ways that I contribute to sexism, and I don't want to anymore. I want to be committed to feminism. I want to work for uh, uh, for gender equity. Um, and so being able to both see the horrors in the society, but then also yeah. being able to see the resistance. Um, and then feeling the outrage for how s- systems of oppression impact all of our people, uh, racism on white people, mm-hmm. patriarchy on men, and then having just a, a overwhelming sense of love for our babies, for our elders, for our people, knowing that throughout history our ancestors, we are the ones our ancestors were fighting for. When our ancestors talk about working for a better day, we are of that day they were fighting for, and we are of the generation that they were fighting for. And so being able to feel the tremendous amount of love that our ancestors have for us, while we also feel that love for the generations coming after us, to be able to have that sense of long-haul intergenerational work for liberation, Uh, So being able to connect, using our spiritual, whatever rituals, whatever practices we have, prayer, meditation, grounding, being able to use whatever kinds of superpowers we have that connect us to our love 
mm-hmm. that connect us to a sense of hope and possibility in these times and a healthy dose of outrage that brings us into confrontation with this death culture because the beloved community is fundamentally a commitment to dismantling this death culture and building up a new world like the industrial workers of the world, the IWW, the radical labor movement of the early 1900s. They said we're building the new world in the shell of the old. We're building the new world as we work to bring down structural inequality today. And so that gives me profound hope to know that I'm a part of a legacy of histories uh, uh, of people who have been working for a better world and to know that we're fighting for the generations to come. What a great note to end on. Thank you, Chris, for being with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. I'm Tina Pippen, and a full list of the team members is at tinapippen.org. The audio engineer is China Wilson. Assistant audio engineer is Abigail Cox. Social media coordinator is Kirsten Schultz. And technical consultant is Emily Gwynn. The opening thematic melody written by Aviva and the Flying Penguins, performed by Aviva and Lance Eric Hagen. Stay tuned.